the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Good evening. This is a podcast as well as a radio station. Go fill your boots. Documentary Edge Festival is underway. James Crute will take us through uh, some more of the features. And also later this hour, Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Documentary Edge Festival time coming up soon. Wellington from the 9th to the 20th of May. Auckland the 23rd to the 4th of June. James Crute, let's get into it again. Yes, let's indeed, Graham. Let's talk big in Japan first, okay. which is uh, quite a clever wee little doco all about, I guess, fame in the 21st century or in 20, you know, the mid-teens or whatever we're in now, late teens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about these three Aussie filmmakers, uh, one of whom is a guy called David Elliott Jones, and he's a, 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 a what the what certain cultural groups would describe as a nebbish-looking bloke with glasses, but geeky, etc. And they decide, how can we make him famous? You know, they want him to become a YouTube... Basically looking into this idea of YouTube and social media fame and how can we do this sort of thing. And so they decide the best way to do it is to go to Japan and set him up as some kind of uh, cultural hero. Because there are so many people who've made it... You know, complete nobodies elsewhere in the world who've made it big over there. Yeah. And he meets... He meets some of those people. So there's a Canadian J-pop wannabe who also works in, like, a guinea pig cafe during her downtime. Uh, and a guy called... No, 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 hang on, hang on. What's a guinea pig cafe? Uh, it's not where you eat guinea pigs. It's where you go and have coffee and things like that and hang out with guinea pigs. It's like the cat cafes that exist. There's even a cat cafe in Auckland. Oh, no, OK. We haven't got a guinea pig one yet. There's a franchise no. starting yeah, up exactly. soon. Yep. OK, so thank you. Uh, but, of course, as they said in Best in Show, the thing with a guinea pig ca- cafe is, of course, in some countries, they eat these people. Oh, well, whatever. Christopher Guest once said. Um, also, there's Bob the Beast Sap, who is this um, kind of like a mini George Foreman, if you like, who's uh, a, bit, a boxer as well as a bit of a TV guy, and an Australian cross-dresser uh, who's also a wrestler. So there's those kind of, you know, peop- these people have to be multi-talented. They also... Uh, have to be willing to let people take strange photos of them as well, whether it's selfies or glamour pics as well. There's this very strange sort of underground industry. I don't even think it's underground, to be honest. It's just part of the thing. Yeah, um, but, but the Japanese culture is very different like that. Yeah, it's, it's quite incredible. They're actually. not prudish, are they? No, that's the thing. And yet there's this kind of reputation that we think they are, but yeah. definitely not. Oh, no. So, yeah, this is, this is a fascinating kind of look at fame, but also how you can become famous in Japan just by not being Japanese, essentially. Right, because they are one of the more homogenous societies in the world, aren't they? Yeah, yeah I think that's probably it. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, a case of being a series of islands, but just being in the, the right place at the right time, I guess, in some ways. Mm, oh, yeah, OK. Yeah. Um, so this... In order to become famous, just make yourself free fodder. Yeah, pretty much. Although there are, um, as as, uh, David discovers, there are people who will help you get jobs doing adverts for, you know, all all the jobs that 
people don't want Japanese people to try and advertise various products and oh, things like that. Okay. You know, but, but it's also, you know, as Lost in Translation showed, you know, Suntory time you know, with the Bill Murray character, etc. Right. You know, they love having Westerners on their advertisements for some reason. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Let's let, talk hot to trot. You, oh, okay. I've got the, I've got the program here. I still like a paper program. <laughs> Don't, I think there's something nice about a paper program. Yeah, I actually I find it is. easier to navigate. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, other than alphabetical order is sometimes more useful than eclectic order. Yeah. But no, look, you know, that's one of the things with both Dock Edge and particularly News on International Film Festival as well. You just got to love a program. I mean, one of the highlights of the year, isn't it, is just pouring over the program and working out what you can get to see and what you can't. Yeah, yeah. But look, when I went to Toronto last year, Graham, imagine the these programs times about 20 as you try and navigate 400 pages worth of it yeah. trying to work out what you can see and what you can't. I'm not advocating any Ludditism, but I still don't think online has got it nailed. It will, of course, but it's still kind of easier to, you know, you can stick post-it notes, you get your highlighter out. I do still find it easier to navigate than online. Yeah. No, I think you're probably right. Yeah, so um, far. Anyway, carry on. I thought Hot to Trot was a good one to talk about because of uh, there's, there's some reality show that uh, MediaWorks have got on at the moment. I think it's called Dancing with the Stars or something I've like that. I've heard of it. Yeah, I thought you might have. Um, anyway, th so this looks at, uh, I guess, the world of competitive ballroom dance, but the alternative world of it. One of the things, as pointed Don't out... Don't naked. It'll be naked. Is it naked? <laughs> no. Oh. Same-sex dancers. Oh, yeah. Something which is verboten within the, you know, the uh, mainstream competitive dancing community. So they basically essentially had to set up their own competition. Oh, well, good for them. Yeah, exactly. As, as one person in this uh, documentary says, um, and you'd think it odds that this is the case, that, that dancing, in particular ballroom dancing, is one of the last bastions of homophobia. R homophobia? Yeah, well, th th they won't... They won't allow same-sex couples in any way. Oh, well, oh, there's lawn bowls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Which is, again, funny because, lawn, I mean, mixed bowls would be fabulous. Oh, they do do mixed bowls. They do. Yes, I but I, I don't think they have gay bowls or anything. But, I mean, so, oh, okay, it doesn't bother me at all. I hope they've, uh, um, that's good that they've got their own thing going. It's all just about the dancing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, of course, uh, the, there's, there's an annual competition, which is the highlight on the American Canada, uh, calendar, which is one of the things they focus on here, but also the gay games, which are essentially the Olympics yeah. for the gay communities, uh, which turn up every four years. I think they're generally in America, from memory. Mm -hmm. um, and so this follows sort of the, the, the usual spellbound, whatever you want to call it, documentary style of following a few couples as they mm. uh, head towards that. Um, there are some, uh, they, a lot of them are of different nationalities and perhaps nationalities that, you know, there's some stereotypes going on maybe, oh, yeah. but, but there's some interesting couples in terms of uh, a, a, a Russian and a um, Latin American, for example, well, you know, whose styles using those stereotypes that I think we're used to clash quite brilliantly. Oh, I, I want to, um, well, I suppose essentially pull you up question uh, about the homophobia uh, thing because ballroom dancing, it's not as if there aren't gay people that are involved in it in the traditional sense. Yeah. Man, yeah. woman, they could, one could be a lesbian, the other's gay, and there are plenty of them. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I know, but this is this is what the people in this documentary are saying. Oh, that while oh, everyone, right. while everybody thinks that, and that, and that's kind of my point, Graham. Everybody sort of says, but surely this has got to be one of the most open and inclusive sort of communities there is. Right. But, but they just don't let women dance with women or men dance with men. Correct. Right. I mean, it's the, the people who run these things. And, and, you know, if you think of, if you watch I, Tonya in terms of the ice skating, there's yeah. that kind of thing as well. Oh, the yeah. The people at the top of these organisations are probably appear to be the most conservative people in the world. And yet, you know, the people who participate in them, as you say, mm. are very diverse and rainbow-coloured, if you like. But, yeah, they but just wanted to preserve the dynamic of the dance as man, it. woman, there's men, stronger, upper body strength. It's like a, a traditional, church, isn't it? traditional moves, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a physicality difference to it as well if you have a man and a woman. Well, I guess the biggest thing, and this must be quite an interesting kind of conundrum for judges, is how do you decide who's leading some of the time? The one in the suit. <laughs> well, no, but, but often they don't. Often, uh, as this documentary shows, they don't do that. They, right. they wear what looks like cool outfits. It's not that kind of obvious thing that that I guess some people might think that yeah, one's in a suit and one isn't. Well, no. that, that, I suppose that's another conservative traditionalist thing that they might want to look at, and that would should one have to lead? We're looking at a revolution in the art world of ballroom dancing. Exactly, which I think is why this documentary is so timely to be on our shores when we're watching, you know, a, a very high-profile example right. of the traditional way of dancing. Right, right. Wouldn't cool. it be radical if Dancing with the Stars came up with the yeah. same-sex couple? Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, I'm, oh, I'm all for it. Okay, oh, I'm interviewing oh, the woman who did the documentary Let's Talk About Sex. I watched it. Yeah, um, I, I haven't yet. I'm uh, getting to it. I was, yep. I was expecting more. Um, yep. I, I think I've seen something like it before. You know, talks to a madam, talks to um, gigolo, talks to sex um, aids people in their shop and everything. There's one thing that's um, strange about shows that want to talk about sex. Um, they forget that when you're really enjoying sex, um, you don't laugh. Yeah. Although in documentaries, it seems you do. May, yeah, I don't maybe. get that. No, I wonder if that's a Hollywood thing as well. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, okay, it, it was um, it was interesting. I'll be having a chat with the director anyway, Lisa Bird. That's Good for you. Probably one, next week. Yep. One I'm not going to go her with a knife. It's a fair <laughs> documentary. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got to ask these questions anyway. You do. You yeah. do. It's part of your job. Yeah. Um, one of the other um, foreign... Oh, what I failed to mention in Hot to Try is that one of the couples features a Kiwi woman who now lives in the States. Oh, groovy. Yeah. Well, it makes uh, all the difference. Whose partner is a type 1 diabetic, and so they both have kind of interesting perspectives on uh, uh, life and love and those kind of things, yeah, and right. dancing, obviously. Um, another um, American documentary with a Kiwi connection is a, one called Kim Swims. And it's all about uh, a renowned open water swimmer who I've never heard of called Kim Chambers, mm. who was a Kiwi. Oh. And she was the first, well, she was trying to become, as this documentary sort of illustrates, the first woman to complete a solo swim from the Farallon Islands to the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh. So it's 50 kilometre stretch, 
known for being rather cold. Yeah. But, I mean, it's near San Francisco, so it can't be that bad. Um, but no, it is freezing. No, the currents are really freezing there. Oh, OK. Yeah. Um, and they're also fairly swirling, apparently. Yeah. Um, but also it's got um, some of the biggest great white sharks in it. Oh, brilliant. So, so it is apparently up there in terms of one of the toughest marathon swims in the world. Okay. So this is a kind of fascinating insight into how she prepares. I mean, you know, we've... Let's be honest, with our swimmers, they've either been in pools or um, swimming the Cook Strait. I mean, this is definitely, uh, definitely potentially a lot more dangerous. Yeah. So. Okay, James, thank you. Documentary Edge, Life Unscripted. It's their 13th year. It's always great. Get yourself a program and have a route through it. Uh, Wellington, 9th to the 20th, so starting this week, really. And Auckland at the Q Theatre, 23rd to the 4th. And we'll keep on top of it, give you as many previews as we can, and we'll be harvesting, uh, rounding up a lot of the visiting directors of uh, these things as well when we can, and we'll put them on the barbie and grill them. Good stuff, James. Thank you very much. No worries. And Max Cryer, up next on Words, Their Origin and Meaning. Special subject, the English language. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Words of Here he is, Max Cryer, answering your questions on words and more besides, actually. Hello, Max. Hello. I'm just looking at the month May mm. and thinking... You know, we sort of we sort of flooded is the wrong word, but we have so many songs and poems about May and the blossoms of May and mm. gathering the May, and mm. which are all a load of rubbish here in the southern hemisphere because it's exactly the opposite. Yes, the it's blooms my... are dropping off the trees. The, the songs were written in the northern hemisphere. Yes, yes. Mind you, it is our own fault because there's no songs written in this hemisphere about the month of May and the blooms dropping off the trees and the weather getting cold. Ah, uh, there is, is one. There? Um, Tell me. It talks about winter. Winter. Mm. And the chorus is June, 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 July. Yes. Comma. Oh, sorry. June, 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 July and August, comma, the winter months. I hope it's got a good tune because the words are a bit dull. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's minimalist words, really. <laughs> yeah, the tune's marvellous. It's oh. by the skeptics. I see. Yes. Yeah. Um, <coughs> okay. If you want to ask Max anything to do with the uh, questions regarding the English language, words, their origin, and thus like, uh, all you have to do is email me through the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. I pass them on to Max. Uh, you can write as well, P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland. You can ask on Facebook. Basically, knock yourself out, and I do my best to make sure that Max's inbox is full. How's the inbox? The inbox is fine. Good. The box is fine. Never a dull moment. Oh, good, good. Uh, first up, our word of the week, flood. Well, yes, the usual definition, flood. I think everyone knows, but we'll do it anyway. Flood is an overflow of a large amount of water beyond its normal limits, especially over what is normally dry land. Now, obviously, floods have been going on for thousands of years, so the word to name them has also been going on for thousands of years. Right. It's been happening for so long, the word is so old, that there's now no definite path for its evolution. Scholars will tell you that the basis of the word goes way back to what is now referred to as pre-Indo-European or proto-Indo-European, which was before the different areas of Europe evolved into their own languages. So that ancient word, and, and really, really, really ancient word, was floodus, 
which meant flowing water. And there's some basis for believing this when you look at the various words across Europe for what we now in English call a flood. Old West Germany had flood, old Scandinavian had flu, old Dutch had vloet, German had flute, and eventually old English had flow. And eventually all of those modified into their current versions, including the old English, which gradually modified from flow into flood, and then as we know it, flood. Now, the basic meaning, a huge amount of unwelcome water, has branched out. So there are many other situations where a great deal of something or other is being referred to, as example, she burst into floods of tears, mm. which, of course, isn't covering dry land at all, but no, you get the message. but at least it's got some liquid there. The, the newspaper received, <clears throat> sometimes the newspaper says it received a flood of complaints. Yes. Um, when the switches were all turned on, the room was flooded with light. The car wouldn't start because the carburetor was flooded. A switchboard can be flooded with calls. But if things go well, congratulatory messages flood in. So, as far as we know, the origin of that word goes back perhaps a thousand years. Right, OK. Oh, yeah, the flood, as in F-L-O-O-D. Yes, yes, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the origin goes back a thousand years. Right. Well, the old, the old English goes back to... Crikey, that's yes. that's 700 AD or yes. 400 AD. Yes, really. at least, yeah. at yeah. least. Okay, um, somebody has asked. I remember this coming through. Oh, someone pointed a finger and gone tut tut, Max. No, no, not quite. No, okay, not, no, no. asked um, about you saying you yourself. Is there a redundancy? Is that the problem? Well, I. Yes, I got the letter, and um, I actually don't remember saying it, but the letter was extremely polite. It wasn't telling me off at all. It said, the letter said, it must be right because Max said it. <laughs> but, but, but he continued, somehow it doesn't sound right. Well, um, the listener is correct on all three counts. I did say it, and yet it doesn't sound quite right, but yet it is an absolutely acceptable figure of English grammar. It even has a formal name. It's called, what for this, emphatic use of the reflection pronoun. Oh, that's lovely. And it happens all the time. Three different versions. I agree, though, that version number three does sound a bit clumsy. Here's version one. If you say to someone, if you say to someone, you did well, you made it yourself. You've actually, um, you've actually reinforced the mm. you with mm. the word yourself. Or, I finished the job myself. Version two could be you yourself made that, right? which is completely acceptable. Uh, version 3 could be... It does add meaning. Yes. He himself told me. Now, mind you, what's called the reflexive pronoun is only correct if the action being mentioned reflects back on the doer. He built the garage himself can sound more effective if it's said as he himself built the garage. Mm -hmm. Nobody helped him. Or... Don't complain that the ladder is wonky because you yourself put it up. Yeah. So you're pointing the finger, you see. In that case, you're emphasizing what someone has said or done. You're using the personal pronoun you plus the reflexive yourself, which draws attention to and emphasizes who's being spoken of. When pupil's mother received the letter, she herself went to the headmaster to inquire about it. See, making it very positive. So here endeth the lesson on the acceptable use of pronoun together with reflexive pronoun to indicate emphasis, but I do agree with the listener's pilot lamp of wonder. It can sometimes sound clumsy. Yeah, all right. Oh, thanks. Well, now we can all get some sleep, as Jack Thompson <laughs> said.
<laughs> Who said it? Jack Thompson. Uh, Australian actor. In the advertisement for the drink you're having when you're not having a drink. It's a famous line and I couldn't, I didn't know who originated it. Clayton's. Remember Clayton's? Clayton's. It was this syrupy liqueur oh, yes. that had no alcohol no, in it. Oh, yes. And there was the couple of blokes at a, in a pub and you saw Jack Thompson sitting at the bar yes. and he just finished telling a joke and he said, now we can all get some sleep. Yes. Everyone laughs. Yes. What yes. are you having, Jack? I'll have a Clayton's. The drink you're having when you're not having a drink. Oh, I remember it now. You and everyone it. didn't have it. You and it went out of business in about a day. <laughs> well, you do it very well. I've got a bottle at home. A bottle of which? Clayton's. Clayton's. Is it the drink you're having when you're not having a drink? Yeah. No, no alcohol. No, that's why it hasn't been drunk. Couldn't you just have Coca-Cola? You could, mm -hmm. but they really wanted to make it look like you were having booze. And now you can all go to sleep. Is that no. what it is? Do it again. No. Oh. <laughs> no. Now we can all get some sleep. Oh, something you. along those well, lines. Well, I have the listener who asked about you yourself has been following all that. All right. Um, oh, let's rip into another one. Uh, let's go into... Oh, yes. Helter-skelter. A famous term. It is famous, and it's also part of a tradition. Uh, repeating parts of words to make something new is called reduplication. It starts in childhood. It starts with childlike, easy-sounding words. Choo-choo for train, wee-wee. Moving on to okie-dokie, zigzag, hanky-panky, and having a sing-song. Now, the impetus for this kind of coining seems to be nothing more than an enjoyment of word play. The words that make up these reduplicated idioms often have little meaning themselves. They only ever appear as part of a pair. You won't hear the word zig very often, but you'll hear zigzag quite yeah, often. Yeah. In other cases, one word will allude to some existing meaning, and the other half is the other half of the pair of words is added for effect. Now, helter skelter is one of those. It signifies chaotic, disorderly haste, and the expression helter skelter has been in use for at least 500 years. Disorderly haste or confusion. Now. Neither word, helter or skelter, have any meaning in themselves. Like many pairs of words, the individual words only exist as part of the pair. The two separate words don't have any independent meaning of their own. You only ever hear them when they're side by side. Let's look at some others. A reduplication with a similar meaning is pell-mell. Uh, which means a confused throng or disordered haste. Now that originated about the same time. Uh, 1570s. Others which came later but are in a similar sort of grouping are harem scarum, reckless rowdiness, hurly burly, meaning commotion and confusion, and in Britain a high slide at carnivals is very popular fairgrounds and it's taken its name from helter skelter it's a tower with a spiral slide going round and round the walls down to the ground users climb up inside the tower and they slide in a spiral down the outside wall riding on a mat and the rider certainly feels chaotic and disorganized and that is called a helter skelter ride but that term had been in use for several hundred years before the fairground rise was given the same name. But you get the point that the, the pairing of two words for effect mm. doesn't mean that the words themselves actually mean anything. No. It's just that you get the message by the sound. Yeah, and it's fun too. It, it, it is fun, yes. Rumpty pumpty. 
<laughs> Rumpy Pumpy. Okie dokie, hunky dory. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, what an asset to the PGA here. Yes, you're, you're good at it. Oh, yeah, okie dokie, hunky dory, just uh, 18 over at the Masters, but never mind. Okay. Oh, I knew, yeah, you mentioned Palmel. I just made a note here. So Palmel means like a, a, a busy, chaotic ramble yes, of people. D- d- disorganised, yes. And is that... Don't mean no, to put it you doesn't on the have, spot. Doesn't, doesn't have to be people. No, no, yeah. just that... Um, is that why in London it's called Palmel because there were lots of people there? No, once. that's Palmel, not Palmel. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> no, that's called Palmel in London because it comes from the game of croquet. Oh, croquet is, is an Italian game called Palmalio, and it was played in London on this wide street that had plenty of room. Oh, and really? So the wide street became known as the Mall because they played croquet there. Right. And then someone built a house at the end of the street called Buckingham Palace, and now the street doesn't have um, croquet anymore, right. but it's called the Mall. Okay, croquet. And if you go to London and ask for any directions to the Mall, oh, you'll, yeah. you'll be told that they don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Oh, we've got one here. Because it's the origin of every shopping mall in the world, yeah. that, the word. It is too, isn't it? Yes. Far out. Yes, from Italian croquet. Right, so when they say that, when Valley Girls say it, I'm going in the Mall, it goes right back to London. Well, it goes back to Italy, to London, to Italy by way of London. Oh, okay. But New Zealanders, for some odd reason, won't pronounce it as it is supposed to be said. No. Well, that's all right. We, we can say things the way we like to say them. No, quite so. Yes, Paul Mall. Packet of Paul Mall. The Siggies. The Siggies are called Pal Mall in England. <laughs> right. I'll have a packet of Pal Mall. Yes, that's right. Bloody hell. <laughs> Bloody hell, Pal Mall. Okie croaky, we'll take a break. And when we return, more fascinating stuff along these lines with Max Cryer. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Max Cryer's here answering your questions on the English language. Ask away on Facebook, send an email from the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. You can write a letter if you like to. P.O. Box 8880, Simons Street, Auckland. Somebody has asked where we get the word obese. Obese. Mm. Well, it comes from two Latin words, ob, Latin ob, meaning completely, and edere, to eat. Now, put them together, and in Latin you get obesus, which means having eaten until fat. Someone who is corpulent. Now, that word travelled into English about 200 years ago with the same meaning, extensively fat. And the hint is, because the person being described as obese appears to have no decisive control over how much they eat. They just keep on eating. There's a similar meaning with the word glutton, because that also comes from Latin glutere, meaning to swallow. And the significance um, of its use settled into describing a person who eats enthusiastically because they swallow a lot. And they become obesos, meaning that that they've kept on eating. Right. Oh, is that it? That's it. Okay. Um, now, somebody asked about the word scrim. I can't remember in which context. Oh, it was a listener whose grandmother... Um, the, the letter said that my grandmother was talking about wallpapering a room and she mentioned scrim. And the listener asked, what is scrim? Well, again, this word is so old, no scholar has ever been able to trace its exact origin, but it actually is quite a fascinating word. Um, the word scrim is not heard at all much nowadays. 
uh, but it has retained, it's developed into four separate meanings. Each of them is way distant from the other three. Grandma's use of the word is quite clear. Scrim was once very commonly, almost always, used during wallpaper in Grandma's day. And the name Scrim was given to a weave of fabric which was strong, but generally fairly light and open weave. It almost, I've seen it, and it was almost as if it was made of threads of sacking. Oh. <clears throat> but the reason for it... Oh, right, that yes, sort of... Yes, you got it, you've remembered... Sacking when you go into a house that was built in 1909, Absolutely. and you take the wallpaper off and, oh, hello. Absolutely. There's a sacking next to this old wood. Well, the reason that Grandma and hundreds and hundreds of other grandmas oh. had this quite coarse fabric, which was often made from straggly sack-like threads, it was pasted onto the wall, which was later going to receive wallpaper, because this pasted and dried scrim provided a very firm, reliable surface for the wallpaper to be glued smoothly. Mm. Wallpaper wouldn't necessarily have always been perfectly flat if put straight onto wood mm. or other walls. And the wallpaper then remained in smooth shape. And that might not have happened if the paper had gone straight onto wood or some other material, but if it went onto paste-soaked scrim, the wallpaper remained for years and years and years. So oh. Grandma was absolutely right. Now, I said there are several other meanings. Meaning two is from the theatre. A close weave of script is used, still very lightweight, and the scene is painted on it. The weave is quite close because you have to paint the scene to look right. Now, lit from the front, you see just the painted image and you're not aware of how flimsy the fabric is. If a different scene is set up behind that, you can't see it, until the light on the painted scrim fades and the light on the set behind is brought up, so one scene fades into another before your very eyes. Oh. That often happens in the theatre. Meaning number three is in the film industry, where sheets of metallic gauze of various density and size, they're also called scrims, and they're sometimes used in movies by placing over powerful lights to create different effects like dawn, twilight, danger, oh. stormy weather. And those are real just ordinary lights facing forwards, but they have certain scrims put over them. Uh -huh. And finally, this is the best one, possibly because the fabrics known as scrims were generally fairly rough, not meant to be seen or worn, the word scrim developed the extended word scrimmage, meaning noisy dispute or struggle, which was gradually pronounced as scrummage, and by 1888 was just shortened to scrum, as in rugby. So the scrum in rugby is related to grandma's wallpaper. Good heavens. Isn't that good? <laughs> yeah, so when Retellic goes down... Here it is. He's related to Grandma's wallpaper. Yes, because she put on her wall a layer of scrim to make sure that the paste and the wallpaper stuck to it. And over time, because the scrim was sort of rough, hairy material, it developed the word scrimmage, which meant sort of rough behaviour, which became scrum. Ha-ha! <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> what a tremendous, circuitous path that word has taken. Yes, yes. I enjoyed that one. I'm glad that person wrote about his Grandma's wallpaper. It can take you to so many different places. Mm.
Okay, um, what does by and large actually mean? Yes, this is one of these phrases we just trot out. We know exactly what we mean, but if you yes. if you surgically take apart the words, yes. you go, what the hell? Why am I saying, well, by and large? Well, of course, I'm the surgeon who has to take away the words. Thank you. It actually turned out to be fairly straightforward. Here we go, doctor. It's an ancient, ancient term. It's nautical. It's from the seafaring of, um, in the days of sailing ships. In seafaring, the nautical... The word large refers to when the wind is blowing from a compass point behind the ship's direction of travel. So the, the sailing is quite easy. Then the wind is said to be large, and that term has been in use by sailors since at least the 1500s. Now, when the wind is in that favourable large direction, the large square sails may be set and the ship is able to travel in whatever direction the captain sees fit. By is a rather more difficult concept to grasp because in simplified terms it means in the general direction of. So the term by and large actually has something after, should have something after it to say which direction they want to go. Sailors would say that to be by the wind is to face into the wind. To sail by and large required the ability to sail not only as earlier square rigged ships could do, that is downwind, mm. but also against the wind. It involves the use of triangular sails, which act like aeroplane wings, and they provide a force that drags the ship sideways. <clears throat> so the 19th century wind jammers were able to maintain progress by and large, even in bad wind conditions. Now, over time, in this case meaning over some centuries, the exact position of the wind and how the wind's ship's direction will cope with it has faded. And we use the term by and large meaning much the same thing. By and large in general means on the whole where everything about a situation is considered. Yeah. Maybe exceptions, but by and large, yes, it's this way. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah. But you're going back 500 years to the sailing ships. Far out. Yeah, I still can't get it. I'd like to figure out how stuff works, but I can't get sailing. I'd have tried. It's a world of its own. How are you blowing at something? How can it come towards you? I, I have an ancient book of seafaring terms, which in this session I use about once a fortnight because it is filled. It's a dictionary of seafaring terms. Oh. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Unsurprising when you get a whole lot of blokes stuck on a boat together. Well, it's not that... Word will come about. Well, yes, but also those blokes on the boat stuck together have to get that boat to somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, you can't predict what the weather is going to do, so they've got all these ways of explaining it to each other. We could do a nightly four-hour program on uh, the terms from seafaring. It would be a bit of a risk, because and we can't assume that everybody wants to know. It would last a while, though, wouldn't it? Well, I think I'd like to look back to 120 years ago today. Okay, off you go. 120 years ago today... One of New Zealand's most bizarre tax laws caused one of New Zealand's most bizarre minor wars. Really? During the later 1800s, a tax was imposed on dog ownership. A fee had to be paid to the government for each individual dog owned. And this was extremely unpopular amongst Maori people in rural areas, many of whom owned several dogs. But equally, many of them had not yet become part of the European concept of having access to income through employment. And they instead lived almost totally rurally self-sufficient lives. So this opposition to the dog tax grew so serious that in the north of the North Island, prominent influential Maoris refused to pay and they expressed an intention of war unless the tax was rescinded. 
So, Richard Seddon, Seddon's government, rushed troops and a gunboat from Auckland to Northland, and while Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Newell trudged 120 armed troops towards Rawani in the Hokianga, with a force of armed Maori men marching there in the opposite direction. Now, fortunately, one member of Parliament was a great-nephew of Honeheke, a man of great mana, and he foresaw the possible incendiary effect of this if the conflicting parties actually started shooting. Mm. So Mr Honeheke Natpua managed to defuse the ambush and the truce was negotiated. But nevertheless, in spite of the truce, 16 men were arrested, charged with illegal assembly and sent to jail. So, 120 years ago, we had what is called the dog tax war. And strangely enough, it's still required that owning a dog does require a payment. The payment is now referred to not as a tax, but a registration. Ah. And it varies considerably depending on where you are um, and, and the characteristics of the dog. Yeah. I understand... And I'm only, I'm only understanding here. I haven't got a um, totally accurate list in front of me. But it can range from $70 up to $170 Far to out. register the dog. Yeah. Different to cats, different from cats, aren't they? Having Why is that? Why is that? Cats generally look after themselves. That's <laughs> not a good enough answer. <laughs> they're, they're kind of... Nothing to do. Dogs look after themselves as well. No, they, they are pleading, barking... <laughs> Um, needy children. That's and what cats they are. don't meow or oh, scratch. Oh, yeah, they do that. But they, you know, they're lying. <laughs> <laughs> At last, like somebody it. admits that cats lie. Yeah, they, of course they do. <laughs> Does the eternal, they're mysterious creatures. I love it when they sit behind um, Venetian blinds, between the Venetian blind and the window, because it's nice and warm in there, and they just look outside. You go past a house occasionally and you'll see one on that little sort of By and large. On that mantle. By and large. <laughs> Doing and nothing. Staring at you. It's strange, though, that dogs can be useful. Oh, yeah, yeah. I totally. mean, many, many, many... They'll do anything you tell them. Oh, Jump in the lake. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and be very helpful while you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, it's just a, just a compliant animal. All right. Um, have you heard... I've got a special interview tomorrow, so I, I want to tell people about it ahead of time because I didn't, I wasn't expecting it to be so much fun. Uh, a singer by the name of P.P. Arnold, her CV is just astounding, Max. Um, what country? England, by way of the USA. She, like Jimi Hendrix, went to London and was in the middle of all that 1966 to 69 um, period. Carnaby Street, all of that. Um, and, well, she was with <coughs> Ike and Tina Turner's Iquettes. Then she went to London. Mick Jagger met her and said, you're all right, Lilf. And she just, she sang with the Small Faces, um, Eric Clapton. Just look her up, the CVs. And she's amazing. still singing, she's still singing. She is. Well done. Um, and she is famously, and yet um, not as well known, um, the tune Pin Soldier by Small Faces. Oh. It's just such a cracker. Everyone's heard it, but I've, I've heard it quite a bit this week, and I've fallen in love with it. And we've got a link to her um, performing with the Small Faces. She was the girlfriend, I think, at the time, 
of Steve Marriott. She certainly did have a romance with him um, for a while. And it's just a really great performance of a tremendous song. A piece of gossip about me emerged this week. Get out, Matt. Well, yes, I was contacted by a researcher who's doing histories of the... Golden Disc Awards. Oh, Loxine. The Loxine Golden Disc Awards. I wonder how many girls were called Loxine at the time. And it turned out that uh, I was the host of the 1968 Loxine show, which was the first time ever that the four television areas of New Zealand, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, Dunedin, were linked. They'd always been separate, like Auckland only watched Auckland, Wellington, watched Wellington, etc., etc. And I stood on the roof of the Intercontinental Hotel with one man and a camera and a light which we were waiting to go red. And I was the first person ever seen on television from north to south over the whole country. Is that right? Yes, and, and all of the commercial radio stations were linked that night. So I spoke the first words throughout New Zealand and was seen throughout New Zealand for the first time ever. Mind you, 1968 is practically a century ago, so I don't expect anyone to remember. I actually had forgotten myself. Still, it happened. You were it, there. It happened. I was there. And, um, you were there. Right. And Golden Disc was won by Alison Durbin for singing oh. I Have Loved Me a Man. I have loved me Everybody a man. Everybody remembers that. Oh. I'd rather they remembered Alison than bothered remembering me, but she was superb. Oh, and there's Craig Scott, 1971, with Smiley. Oh, that was a biggie. And there was the and and um, didn't it, it? It was Larry Morris and the Rebels and you know quite exciting groups. That was a time. big deal, Daddy. Oh, and Shane was a big deal. Too. Shane, yeah. But it was a freaky scene, Daddy. Oh, <laughs> I didn't talk that language. <laughs> Your friend Pete Sinclair did. He was the master. I, well, when I'd finished addressing the nation up on the roof of the hotel, I threw to downstairs and Peter was waiting downstairs and he took over. Okay, cats and dolls, we've got a groovy scene happening here. <laughs> Doesn't get groovier than P.P. Arnold doing that magnificent belting chorus to that absolutely iconic piece of music. Tin Soldier, she's on tomorrow night. Boy, has she got some stories. Uh, that'll be between 10 and 11. But here's the big hit.
I've re-fallen in love with that tune. P.P. Arnold, the chorus singer. Man, she's a great story. That's tomorrow night after 10pm. It's 10 now on a Saturday, almost.